Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hello, Scott. Hey, buddy. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We are glad to have another um, visitor with us today, whom I will introduce in just a moment. But first, let's rehearse our three tenets for this podcast. Yeah. First, sacred cows make great barbecue. That's right. What does that mean to you, Scott? Um, well, the, you know, the explanation we like to use is uh, we'll scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please. I think the, the deeper uh, underpinning of that is that we're not afraid to ask hard questions of even the things that we already believe. That's right. And our second tenet is that we will let our flags fly proudly. So we will stand up and chime in and give our opinions about things we believe firmly in, even if it means drawing fire from our opponents, right? Right. And third, bros before politicos, uh, we, we're brothers first and we figure everything else out. That's right. And we really recommend that third tenet for everyone uh, who listens and discusses what it means to be a Christian in the public square, including our guest today. And I am so glad to welcome our guest today, who is the Reverend Dr. Brian Stewart. He is a professor of religion at McMurray University here in Abilene. He holds an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary and a PhD in theology from the University of Virginia, which, as I understand, is the most beautiful campus in America, physically speaking. That's what I've been told. The Reverend Dr. Brian Stewart is also an ordained priest in the Anglican Church of North America's Diocese of Fort Worth. Brian, welcome to our podcast. Welcome, Brian. Thank you both. It's good to be here. I appreciate the invitation. And I do think that the University of Virginia grounds, <laughs> as we call it, we don't call it a campus. It's a, the grounds. Uh, really? Yes. They are some of the most beautiful pieces of land in this country. So I've I was uh, privileged to have been able to be there for six years. Wow. Well, that's what I've heard. And I've I've not been to that campus. I've been to University of Hawaii at Manoa, which I think is pretty far up there, Scott, mm, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I'm well, biased, but yes. Well, we have Brian on today uh, to talk about a subject that has come up from its surface, I would say, from time to time, as we have discussed topics that have led us around our subject matter today. And as I have known Brian for several, well, I guess a couple of years now, Brian, I was going to say several months, but I've known you as a colleague mm-hmm. and at church for a while. And yep. um, something that ha- has arisen that's really on point. So let me just ask it this way, Brian. Um, we Scott and I often talk on this program about the degree to which God's church should enlist pursue, or otherwise avail themselves of the power of the state. Mm -hmm. You've been tracking a pretty unique situation in which a religious organization has sued another for years over a land dispute. So first, can you just kind of lay out the details of the case and, and describe the dispute and the defense and how the court result surfaced a few weeks ago? Sure. Yeah. So I, as you mentioned, I'm a ordained priest in the Anglican Church in North America, uh, in particular, we're part of the Diocese of Fort Worth. And that diocese has been in a an 11 year long 
lawsuit with the Episcopal Church mainline. Uh, so maybe give a little bit of background about why that lawsuit came about, and mm-hmm. then I'll try to uh, navigate us through the 11 years of, of court rulings and appeals and and decisions, and, and it's not quite over, but uh, I'll try to bring us as up-to-date as I can. So the Diocese of Fort Worth, um, which was a, a one of several dioceses in the Episcopal Church uh, USA, uh, decided in 2008 uh, through a diocesan convention to leave, uh, to disaffiliate with the Episcopal Church mainline and to realign with the a different province in the Anglican Communion, a province of the Southern Cone. And that, that was over a number of issues, all, I think, centering around questions of biblical authority, uh, which we can get into later if you want to. But, uh, but the decision was made by the, by the Diocesan Convention in 2008 to separate. As a result of that separation, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church mainline uh, sued the Diocese of Fort Worth for all of its property. Uh, because when our diocese left, we, uh, it, it, was a, it was an overwhelming vote, uh, majority of clergy, majority of lay delegates, and all but I think six parishes there, are 50, there were 56 parishes in our diocese, and uh, 50 of them out of the 56 all voted to, to leave together. And so when that separation took place, those 50 churches naturally uh, believed that they retained the property that they had, had been in, and the Episcopal Church saw it differently uh, and sued the diocese to regain all of that church property. So it went to the courts. There were some attempts on our side to uh, to kind of work that out without having to use the law courts. Um, that that did not prove successful. So it went to the law courts, and I, I don't know the exact year, but it was a few years after because it takes a while to get to through the courts and to the judge and determination to be made. But it started at a trial court level. And the initial ruling from that trial court was in favor of the Episcopal Church USA, um, who granted the property and, and possessions to the, the, denom- the main denomination. Uh, the diocese appealed that and decided to appeal directly to the Texas Supreme Court. And the Episcopal Church agreed, you know, it's probably just going to end up there anyway. So let's just kind of fast forward it. So they moved it straight to the Texas Supreme Court. This the Texas Supreme Court then in 2013 remanded it back to the trial court and ordered the trial court to re-rule the case applying something called neutral principles of law, which is basically a way to determine who owns property by looking at whose name is on the deeds, and that's the owner. So it was sent back to the trial court. Um, the Episcopal Church attempted to appeal that to the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court denied to take up that case. And so it went back to the trial court. The trial court ruled this time uh, in favor of the diocese, applying the neutral principles of law uh, as asked by the Texas Supreme Court. So, of course, that was then appealed by the Episcopal Church mainline. Uh, 
and it went to the Second District Court of Appeals in Texas. The Second District Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the Episcopal Church mainline (laughs) (laughs) and sent it back to the trial court to be re-ruled once again. I'm sure that the trial court judge at this point is just ready to be done with this case. (laughs) It's been sent back to him several times now. Uh, So that was in 2018 when the the District Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the mainline church. 2018, then, the diocese appealed that ruling back to the Texas Supreme Court, which, of course, has already seen this case once and had made a ruling on it. So they took it up again. And with just a few weeks ago, the Texas Supreme Court reversed that appeal court decision and sent it back, guess where, to the trial court once more. Um, This time, the ruling was unanimous by the Texas Supreme Court, eight to zero, ruling in favor of the diocese that the case should be determined on the case on the basis of neutral principles of law. So that's where things sit. Now, uh, the Episcopal Church mainline does have the option to try uh, a few more things. They and they've already asked the Texas Supreme Court if they wanted to reconsider that. And so um, I believe we're still waiting on that. It's not likely with a unanimous eight to zero decision, the Texas Supreme Court is going to reconsider. Um, but we have to go through that appeal. And then they have the option of trying to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And nobody knows, of course, what will happen, but it doesn't seem likely that the U.S. Supreme Court will take that up because they've already declined to take it up earlier in this uh, court history. Um, So if things stand at that ruling with the Texas Supreme Court, uh, that would mean then that the diocese has been granted uh, official ownership of all property, uh, church buildings, some rectories, and there's a, a church campgrounds as well. And the value of that property is thought to be a little over $100 million. So um, so that's that's where things stand. And I don't know if you all have been following, but there has been just another recent ruling within the last few days out of, out of South Carolina, uh, which we don't have to go into. But it was it was a similar situation where an entire diocese chose to leave the Episcopal Church and disaffiliate back in 2012. And that's gone through the courts as well. And so just literally a couple of days ago, there was another decision by a circuit court who awarded uh, all the property to the to the uh, traditional diocese that tried to separate. So uh, we'll see where that thing goes. I'm sure it'll be appealed as well. But uh, that's the state of things right now. Uh, well, let me make sure that I understand this as a layperson, okay? Because you just right. had a, quite a mouthful to say of, of legal yeah. things, and Scott can jump in too. But, okay, I'm a person, let's say, who lives in Fort Worth. And every right. day I drive to work and I drive past the XYZ Episcopal Church. And one day the people in that church, along with some other churches across town, vote that they want to dissociate themselves from the Episcopal Church and reassoci- reassociate themselves with the Anglican Church. Right. And at that point, the Episcopal Church says, that's fine, you can do that. But the church and the property that you are now that you've been meeting in for all these many years actually belongs to us and we will be taking it back correct okay 
and the right. campground and and the rectory. Scott, anything to right. ask for clarification? Mm, not yet. Are you there? Okay. So, yeah. Brian, I, I want to pursue a follow-up on one thing. Uh, you okay. said there was an attempt to mediate without involving the courts, but it didn't go anywhere. Can you – do you know much about that? I don't. You know, I, that was a little before my direct involvement with the diocese. I, I was not ordained in this diocese until 2015, <clears throat> so I've only been here for about five years in that diocese. And, uh, of course, this all started back in 2008, so – I don't know the details of that, uh, other than that the the bishop at the time um, attempted to work with the with the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church uh, to try to come to some understanding uh, about uh, the claims on each side, and I, I, my understanding is that they could not arrive at any kind of agreement. Brian, I do have a question. Um, what? What is meant by neutral principles of law? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. <laughs> um, I I should have a disclaimer here. I am not a lawyer. I'm not trained in any legal way. Uh, I, I just try to be as informed as I can. But I, so if I if I get anything wrong here from a legal side, I, I beg everybody's forgiveness. But um, neutral principles of law is comes out of a United States Supreme Court ruling, which actually is called Jones versus Wolf. And it was a case involving uh, church property. And it was involved church that wanted to disaffiliate from a denomination. It became a question of who owns the property. And the U.S. Supreme Court in that ruling decided that the, the way that the courts can decide who owns property is not to get tangled in ecclesiastical questions of doctrine and denominational affiliation and uh, hierarchy and that sort of thing, but to simply apply what what they called neutral principles of law, which is to say, how do we how do we know what property belongs to who in any other case? Right. Well, we look at the deed and we see whose name is on it. And we say that's who it belongs to. So, you know, if if my house uh, mortgage or whatever has my name on it, then a court is going to say that belongs to you. Even if somebody else comes along and says, you know, I I think that house belongs to me uh, because I lived in there for one time and and I want it back. You know, so the court basically wanted to say, you know, let's not get tangled in church doctrine and hierarchical questions. Let's apply property law in the same way we would apply property law elsewhere. Let's look at the deed and see who's on the deed. That's neutral principles of law. It's just interesting that, you know, the case comes about because of doctrinal and ecclesiastical questions, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. But then when you take it to the courts, the courts are saying, yeah, we're not interested in that. So we will make a decision based solely upon neutral principles of law and in which case the purpose for the dispute is taken out of the decision process. That's right. It's just an it's just an ultimate form of absurdity from my point of view. <laughs> and and I'll I'll be hitting on that a few times myself because I I do wonder how in the world we get here when churches sue other churches. Yeah. 
Um, in right. in light of in light of scripture, it's pretty plain and pretty clear that that is not what we do. Yeah, I think you're right, and uh, I mean, absurd, uh, tragic, uh, scandalous. I mean, it, this is not good in any way that that Christians are suing Christians, and uh, uh, you know, it's the court costs for both sides have been have estimated to have run in the millions. Um, that's just in the diocese of Fort Worth case. I mean, the, the diocese of South Carolina, and there have been a few others uh, in California and Illinois. The money that has been spent wrangling in courts is astronomically high. And, and it, that money could have been spent in so many other better ways. So just from a sheer use of money, it's it's a terrible thing. But then you add the layer on top of that, that the witness that this bears yeah. in our world to the Christian faith is, uh, I think, frankly, scandalous. So uh, I don't celebrate this in any way, uh, even though I think there are principles of fairness and justice that need to be worked out. The way that it's been worked out uh, is almost entirely negative. Hmm. It's interesting to me that, um, and we've talked about this before, Brian, but this is just now occurring to me really because of the, what Scott said, it seems like we three are coming together into one accord about how things should remain separate, but it was the state court system who seems to have shown that wisdom this time by saying all you guys with your ecclesiastical agreements are way over there we're not interested in bringing that into our house we're interested Mm -hmm. in making a decision on the neutral principles of law and it's the church that's saying please please come into our house and help us sort this out and it, it seems the very opposite of what we we three seem to want in fact the court stated that one of the one of the one of the reasons that the that the court um, insisted upon the neutral principles of law was because of the First Amendment. That's part of the argument in the decision. Yes, right. right. Is, the is, church, is, yeah, the state should not protect- be meddling <laughs> yeah. in church affairs. So the the state is saying we are not going to we are not going to uh, enter into a violation of your First Amendment rights. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Right. And, you know, to so there's the other side of this, of course, uh, the, the argument that the Episcopal Church was wanting to make is that in, in a convention that they held in 1979, they enacted something called the Dennis Canon. Mm-hmm. And the Dennis Canon was a statement that all parishes and dioceses property across the country was held in trust for the Episcopal Church. And so part of the argument from the the Episcopal side to the courts was to say, look, um, you don't need to meddle in our doctrinal affairs, but, you know, we made this decision in 79 that all property is going to be held by us. So you should grant that we're the hierarchy here and defer to us. And so it's a legal argument from, from one angle. And then the neutral principles is arguing from a different angle, which is to say, you don't need to in- interfere in any questions of hierarchy. Just look at who's on the deed. And, and that's pretty simple. So, uh, you know, 
I was troubled by this personally uh, as I kind of got into the, the diocese, just the fact that, you know, it seems that Christians have neglected what St. Paul has said about not suing one another. <laughs> but, um, you know, I remember asking or speaking with, with the bishop at the time about this, and, you know, his response was, well, you're right, this is a terrible thing, but we're not the ones suing them. Uh, all we're trying to do is separate. And they're the ones suing us. So we are simply defending ourselves in yeah. court. It's sort of saying, well, what do you want us to do? You know, we we have disaffiliated and we just continue to worship in the same buildings that we've been in for the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, are we just going to say because somebody comes along and says those buildings belong to me, we should all vacate. And he just felt that it would be different if if he was suing the mainline church but because they were being sued it was more a matter of we need to make our defense uh so yeah so i guess i you know i understood that but it's it doesn't um it doesn't sweeten the the reality that this just looks so bad Um, well brian the the listeners will might remember that in a previous episode i confessed that i was an unwilling partner on the other side, a part of the plaintiff. <laughs> I knew uh, I wanted to bring this up, Scott. <laughs> it's such a great so, story. And I, I hated every second of it. Um, but Brian, I was, I was preaching for a congregation. And so I was part of the trust. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of the trust wanted to sue another congregation over property um, because of doctrinal, doctrinal issues. And so uh, we, so I was, part of the trust that was the plaintiff. Um, and yeah, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. I mean, you, you know, you, uh, you, I wrestled, I wrestled with a number of ethical questions about how do I maintain my participation in a trust that's doing something that I don't believe in. Right. Right. I think it's fundamentally wrong. And yet, um, you know, you start thinking about what happens if I'm not in the room <laughs> and mm-hmm. how, will, how will decisions be made if I'm not a part of this? So, yeah, I, I don't mean to cast judgment by any means because, um, I live in a glass house when we talk about these things, but, um, but I do think it's absurd. Yeah. Do you think I would like, uh, to read, First Corinthians 6, the first eight verses. Do you think that would be instructive? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Okay. By the way, Cole, um, just, so, just so everyone knows, I've linked um, a news article related to the, uh, to the, to the case, also uh, Bishop Mayer's letter to the diocese, and the actual case itself in show notes. Oh, excellent. There you go. Okay, this is First Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. Suppose one of you wants to bring a charge against another believer. Should you take it to ungodly people to be judged? Why not take it to the Lord's people? Or don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Since this is true, aren't you able to judge small cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? Then we should be able to judge the things of this life even more. So suppose you disagree with one another in matters like this. Who do you ask to decide which of you is right? Do you ask people who live in a way the church disapproves of? Of course not. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that no one among you is wise enough to judge matters between believers? Instead, one believer goes to court against another. And this happens in front of unbelievers. 
When you take another believer to court, you have lost the battle already. Why not be treated wrongly? Why not be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do it to your brothers and sisters. What, Cole, what version of, what translation is that? Yeah, is that the message? That's... I don't think little, you're allowed to say that. There's a little that. free form there. <laughs> <laughs> that is the New International Reader's Version. Okay. Okay, the message says, ain't none of y'all supposed to be doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, and so this is very interesting, and it reminds I just now, as we're talking about this, I remember a two-second conversation I had with a very good friend of mine who's an attorney. His name is Matt. And this was several years ago when several things were being litigated about marriage and whom you could marry and whom you could marry and and so forth. And um, Scott and I had, had several conversations and, and so others of other friends of mine and I had too. And I said, why can't why can't the legal system just say um Whatever your church decides to do, marriage should be a church issue and not a state issue. Why can't they just leave it alone? And he said to me, because Christians brought it into the law in the first place. And I thought, wow, I had never realized that that is the case. That we had, in Scott's words, we had wanted to truck with that power for certain advantages that it gave married couples instead of saying, the law is the law uh, over here, and the church marriage rituals and expectations and covenants are over here, and we're not interested in mixing the two. We were, in fact, very interested in mixing the two. By the way, I think if you go that route, if you say that the church defines what marriage is, then a lot of people are getting married and divorced time and time again. If, if a person has sexual relations with another person, from a scriptural point of view, they are now married. Mm-hmm. That's the Hebrew right? law. Mm-hmm. So my point being, it's the absurdity of relying upon the state to define marriage that makes us water down what the definition of marriage is. Yeah, yeah. Once again, we have we have we have traded in the absurd by wanting uh, to drug power with the state or to get protection from the state. And I think that's maybe that's maybe you know if you think about uh, churches owning property, that's really an appeal to the state to protect what is mine, or what belongs to the trust. Right? That's so that if if that's my appeal to the state, if I have a deed of ownership, that's an appeal to the state to protect what I paid someone to give me this piece of land. Mm-hmm. I think you've already that is already crazy. No, I'm because because we've already turned to the state and said, "Could you please protect this?" Th- I gave Cole uh, ten bucks for this park bench. Now I want a deed of trust that the state will enforce for me, so that somebody doesn't come sit on my park bench. And and I know that having a building is different, but that's what we're doing when we when we go to the state to get a deed in the first place to own property in the first place. Yeah. Now, Brian, you're seeing where Scott and I diverge on the on private property rights, which is a function. Sure. Of being a wait, 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 but I'm talking regardless. I think there's a discussion to be had of whether the church should own property. 
Well, the church is made up of private individuals. And uh, so if you don't want the church to own property, I, aren't you in some ways suggesting that there should be no private property ownership at all? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, Brian, that is true. Um, I don't believe people should own property. But having said that, um, I think uh, I, I, I'm not. Look, this is a. This is an argument. I hate to use the word absurd again, but this is an argument toward the absurd. But I think part of the problem that we're having is we, as soon as you say that this group of people who comprise the church own this place of land, that's where this whole conversation starts. Now you have disputes over the land. Maybe we could dis maybe we could solve those amongst ourselves, but the state is involved because we asked the state for, to protect it. I mean, we own the, the state guarantees the deed. Yeah, but I'm I'm ready to hear you say instead we should all be just meeting in our homes, and I'm going to ask you who protects the homes. Right, I know, I know. Well, it gets crazy. And I'm also going to bring up the wonderful work that happens with the International Justice Mission (IJM) and part of what they do in uh, other countries where women and poor people are mistreated so heavily by people who come and throw them out of their house onto the street and say, "We now own this house." IJM comes and litigates that to courts and says, actually, this is this widow's house and you'll all vacate or go to jail. And she now owns her house again where she can sleep and cook and eat food and take medicine and so forth. So I'm not sure that private property is a bad thing in itself, even if the church has to sometimes um, involve itself with protecting claims against it. Wow, that was a flag flying, Scott. What do you think? That was. No, I, and I know my flag flies as well. I mean, so Brian, uh, one of the, I don't know that we've talked about it on the podcast, but one of the things that's true about me is I have a, a you know, a question about whether it is ethical to own property. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I do think um, it's possible to see my view about the church as an extension of that. But I don't know that it's necessary to see as an extension of that call. That's where I'm getting to is um, I, I, I do think that there are times where we hold ourselves to a higher ethical standard than we expect of non-believers. Yeah, I do too. I, I And I think it goes pretty far, but I'm not sure I think it goes as far as you would think it goes about the ownership of property. But uh, let me ask, let me bring it back to Brian for a second and say, um, Let's turn, Brian, to your scholarly work as an early Christian scholar, an early church scholar. Do you have some larger opinions about, or I should say more general opinions, about the church and the states coming together and intermingling? I mean, you are an Anglican priest, and Anglicanism has a long history of the church and the state operating together as one, but yet you live in America where that is not the case. So how do you, how do you navigate those waters? There's a big question for you. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> or what would you like to say about it? Explain about the relationship <laughs> between the church and the state all the way back to Henry VIII. Right. How much time do I have? Um, you know, this is a, obviously this is a question that has been debated and discussed throughout the history of Christianity, because the, that relationship of church and state has always been a difficult one to navigate and, and to balance. And I, so personally, I think that the 
the wedding or marriage of church and state uh, too closely uh, can be quite dangerous. But I, I am also not, I guess I'm not opposed to some elements of cooperation. There, I think there are trade-offs here. Um, there are benefits and risks um, for the church, depending on the relationship. So, for example, if you want to start kind of where this all, you know, raises its head is with, uh, with Constantine, the emperor, the Roman emperor Constantine in the early fourth century. Prior to his rise to power, uh, Christianity is largely a minority religion that is that does not have a lot of rights and freedoms within the Roman Empire. And in some cases, it was quite explicitly persecuted as a minority religion. And so when Constantine comes on the scene, one of the first things that he does is enacts the Edict of Milan, which is kind of a, a declaration of a freedom of religion. And it does not make Christianity the official religion of the empire, but what it does is makes Christianity a legitimate religion or a legal religion in the empire. And that begins to afford uh, great advantages for Christianity. Um, and I would say, looking back now, you can say that what Constantine did was both a blessing and a curse for the church. It was a blessing in the sense that it ended persecution of Christianity. Uh, people could no longer haul up Christians and throw them in the arena just because they didn't like Christians and wanted to blame them for things that were going on in the, in the, in the empire. So it ended, it ended persecution. But on the other hand, what Constantine also did was began to uh, give land to Christianity, begin to help build churches for Christians, um, help support them financially. And you start to see this wedding and merger of church and state so that as you fast forward in history a little bit, you start to realize that Christianity starts to get watered down. Um, the adherence to the Christian faith are maybe not quite as committed because there's great political and cultural and social advantage now to becoming a Christian. Hmm. Whereas before, if you were a Christian before Constantine, you were a Christian because it meant something to you. You didn't just do it because it was the socially cool thing to do. It was, it was clearly a, a, you know, sort of countercultural, and it could get you killed. After mm -hmm. Constantine, that all changes. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to rise in the ranks within political life, it really helps if you're a Christian. And uh, you know, now you start having people sort of becoming Christian or adhering to Christianity, not simply for the sake of a personal commitment, but for the sake of gain, advantage, and, you know, social climbing. So, you know, so I don't want to cast Constantine as purely negative because I think some of the things that he did for the church were quite good. And persecution is, I think, a good thing um, mm. to afford them a place in the empire where they could begin to build and grow um, is a good thing. But with that came the kind of the darker side of things. So that complexity that Constantine began will continue to play itself out all the way 
through late antiquity into the Middle Ages, even into the Reformation. Um, and it's only now that we are really in this sort of post-Christendom era where, you know, historically the, the merger of church and state is no longer assumed. And of course, in America, it's actually sort of within our our founding documents that we, we want to sort of protect that separation between church and state. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, so anyway, that's a quick kind of early history and then and some of what I think about the pros and cons of that. Maybe you can respond to that and we can go from there. Well, I, you know, um, I think it was in episode two that I call that I described, you know, it only takes two generations to go from the Edict of Milan to the Edict of Thessaloniki, where now Christianity mm-hmm. is the required, you know, it's, it's, it's the imperial religion. Right. And that seems right. to me a very different uh, construct. And part of what, be, you know, part of what becomes difficult is then to take that construct where Christianity is in some way a participant in the distribution of power and turn back to the New Testament and understand the New Testament writings through that different lens. I think it makes it very, very difficult. Um, and I, and I, I think that's, uh, so much of where my own concern about what we do as a church stems from is I, I'm, I don't know how to, I don't know how to sweep away, um, 1700 years of history, uh, especially when we only had just a few years, uh, there without, um, a relationship with power. And so becoming, uh, kind of a post-Christian empire world is a new place for us for the first time in 1700 years uh, and, and figuring out really how to do this, how to do it well, I think is, is a huge challenge. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to wag my finger and, uh, uh, and have my hands on my hips and, you know, what a shame that the church is, is doing such a bad job. But I do think it's something that um, we have to wrestle with and wrestle with seriously. I think also, Brian, I want to point out that um, I expected somebody to fight me on this, and neither one of you fought me. Uh, Paul does appeal to the state for protection. Yeah. When he was being flogged, he said, are you going to flog an, a, a citizen? And that <laughs> Right. Right. There's an appeal to his citizenship and he appeals for protection from the state uh, based upon his rights as a citizen of the empire. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring that up is I do wonder what that means in terms of um, when the church does need protection of the state. Isn't it appropriate if if you see Paul's uh, action there as authoritative or, or illustrating what we can or should do, um, there might be some there might be some Pauline precedents for for appealing to the state for protection. That would be different than appealing to the state for aggression. I, I and I don't know yes. I, I don't know uh, how to parse the difference. But well, and let yeah. me just quickly add that it, that verse two of what I read in First Corinthians six. Um, since this is true, 
aren't you able to judge small cases? So it could be, and I'm, I'm, I don't read Greek, but I don't, and so I don't know what small cases means, but could it be that he is appealing people to drop the petty small claims court type things and say, you know, make some decisions yourself, appeal to the elders among you, the wise people among you, which is different from if a Roman is killing you, you should say, hey, everyone, I'm a Roman. So Maybe. I think, but in Pauline theology, though, I, I think that there's something bigger going on where Paul would say anything that's happening in the world around us is small things. Oh, maybe right. So. We, we judge angels. Paul is saying we're, we're involved in the work of judging angels. So why in the world are we having a dispute about something small in, in terms of something temporal? I mean, Compared, Brian, okay. do you yeah. think I'm crazy? No, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know quite what Paul meant when he talked about small <laughs> things, but there's no way Paul has envisioned a uh, hundred million dollar church property dispute in <laughs> West Texas. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. Paul don't was plenarily inspired. So yeah, maybe well, so. Maybe so. Maybe he maybe oh, he Jesus. had a vision about it. But <laughs> I mean, I think to Cole's point, you could make a case that this is no small matter that, uh, you know, this is, this is big. And, and, you know, there's no church courts that can handle this. So, you know, uh, it's, it's a matter of property, which is a, which is a state issue. And, and this was something I was going to say earlier, but, um, you know, didn't, didn't really have a chance to, um, we kind of moved in a different direction, but I think some of this question really centers around what you think the purpose of the government is. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Paul talks in Romans 13, Paul talks about the government being in existence, having that, having the authority from God, but particularly says, um, you know, that the purpose of that authority is in a sense, to protect you, it's it's for God's servant for your good. Right now, that you know how how you define what is, what is the good, the common good. Uh, you know that's where some of the debate comes in. But I think mm-hmm. that I don't know. I feel like at least maybe we can all agree that one of the goods that government should watch out for is our safety. And our protection, mm-hmm. um, and I think this is partly where, you know, property law comes in here. Um, part of why we let the state, you know, work up documents that we sign that say I own this house and nobody else is so that somebody can't just walk in and take it over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the state is doing its job to protect the common good of of its citizens. Um, so part of, so that's different to me, the state protecting the common good is different than like you said, Scott, the state now sort of aggressively enforcing a particular religious commitment. Mm. Um, you know, that, that's what this whole new world, this experiment of the new world was trying to get away from Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) is, is established churches or churches that were basically state run churches, uh, which had been true all through the middle ages. And 
even the Reformation, for all of its protest and, and fighting against the medieval Roman Catholic Church, still was operating under the principles of Christendom, so that you have a German state church. You know, Germany is largely Lutheran. Uh, Geneva is largely Calvinist. Uh, you know, England is Anglican or Church of England. You know, Spain was Roman Catholic. So you still have, even in the Reformation, you still have uh, the government basically controlling the churches. And so, I mean, I, I, I am struck sometimes when you just look at the grand sweep of history of how incredibly unique the new, the colonists were and our founders were in trying to strike this notion of religious freedom uh, in something that hadn't been done for like 1,700 years. That's a and point, you know, yeah. it's, it's incredible. So, uh, you know, so to me, there's a difference between the state, which is trying to coercively enforce a kind of religion, and a state which is simply trying to exercise protection and safety for its citizens. And I'm okay with Christians being involved with the latter of those, but, but not the former. Yeah, I think too. That's a brilliant point, Brian. And I've, it's um, you, you, you kind of put your finger on what I was trying to hint at earlier. This in the in the larger scope of history, in the larger scope of church history, this experiment of a a non state church is bizarre. Mm-hmm. And it's new and. It's something I think we're working out in real time. Um, right. and, and in fact, we're working it out in real time, um, oh, maybe over the past two decades, three decades, where we're really starting to experiment with what it means to have an, an you know, have the state separate from the church and yeah. really starting to ask some of the deep questions. Right. And, uh, and that is something that uh, is probably a, a, an, a, I don't know if it's a growing pain, but it's an evolving pain for the church um, as we go through that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I, you know, I think for most of the history of the United States, this notion of the separation of church and state, you know, Jefferson's phrase, or the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, was sort of just assumed, as we all understood what that meant. And I think you're right. right. Within the last couple of decades, now we're getting into the debate. So wait a minute. What does that actually mean mm-hmm. to separate mm-hmm. church and state, particularly in cases where government money perhaps is given mm-hmm. in right. support of nonprofits of religious commitment mm-hmm. or, or some sort of tax benefit is granted to a nonprofit of a religious commitment? Right. Uh, you know, where, where the lines start and stop about that separation. And so now within the last couple of decades, we're seeing all kinds of really thorny, complicated and interesting questions uh, about that relationship. You think of uh, Roman Catholic adoption agencies in terms, you know, who can there, can they not place children with? You talk, talk about the Obamacare with, uh, you know, forcing uh, contraception coverage or not. You think about um, prayer in schools, you think about small business owners and their personal faith commitments in terms of who they can or can't serve, displaying religious emblems on public property. I mean, all of this just seemed to have been a non-issue until the last couple of decades. 
and now we're working it out <laughs> in lifetime, like you say. Yeah, I, I do think Scott's right. The past 20 or 30 years, we're seeing a lot of Christians who are not getting their way legally, and they're having to feel um, the pain of what true separation of church and state means because they have not had to really think about it other than academically for the large portion of the history of the country. And, and well, that's where, and that's where I want to go. Uh, I, when I read um, Scott Mayer's statement, uh, the Episcopal from the Episcopal diocese of Fort Worth, there's a, there's a paragraph that I think I, I really want to hit on because I think it gets at the center of this. He says, for now we must all, Adorn the mantle of patience and forbearance. I ask for your prayers and urge us all to stay focused on the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and mm. our mission to the ministries in days ahead. I remain convinced that we are right in our affirmation that we are continuing the epistle of the diocese of, and I'm its bishop. But he's, you know, he's he's flying his flag there. He's saying, I I think we're on the right side of this. But I do appreciate when um, even in the midst of all this, we call one another back to the fundamental purpose that we belong to because you know whatever paul envisioned i don't think he envisioned the difference between an anglican and episcopalian and an evangelical and a christian and a church of christ and the disciples of christ and you know all of the different flavors of us mm -hmm. uh, it's clear to me that he that he understood the church as a catholicos not as um not as it's you know parts that would that would argue and fight doctrine against one another Nonetheless, well, I don't know about that, but well, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I look at Corinthians out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, you know, are yeah. some of you from Apollos? Is some of you from? That's the, right. Yeah, know, he knows and, about factions. Yeah, and he uh, see, he starts Galatians. I am surprised, beginning. but that's yeah. that's part of that's part of where Paul is coming from in Galatians, right? right? Is that I am surprised that you've forgotten the gospel. That, uh, right. right. And um, and I really do appreciate where Mayer makes that that same call uh even in, in the middle to his own side and says hey uh uh we can't forget the gospel yeah well thank goodness he said that because i, I would say just from the other side it didn't seem like he was remembering the gospel i know and for you know presiding bishop michael curry's all his talk about love uh we sure didn't feel that love I know. <laughs> on, on the court I know. side. As he I had know. many opportunities to just drop the suit and say, you know what? We'll go on without it. We don't need this. Um, so I, I'm glad that, that Bishop Mayer did say that because I think that's, that's good for all of us to hear on both sides. That right. It's so easy to get caught up and somehow think that what really matters in all this is, is who gets the property. But that's really a... a secondary or tertiary issue of the gospel and people's lives being the first priority. And both sides need to remember that. Hey, I've got a really, I've got an eye on the time, but I have a really great question I'd like to hear both of you weigh in on as we think about winding down, okay? And um, <clears throat> I haven't previewed it with either of you, so I can't wait to hear. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what would you think a la what we read from 1 Corinthians, if there were some sort of local conflict resolution body per city or per diocese. So Scott in the Churches of Christ, maybe each church uh, ponies up an elder 
who is on this board. And Brian, maybe in the diocese, there's a certain number of uh, bishops or or vicars who sit, and they hear disputes. And the part of your training as a person in um, coming up through the uh, catechismic learning or um, part of joining a church is to say, if you have disputes with other people in this church, they go to this board of people who are in this church. They do not, or who are part of our tradition. They do not go to legal entities outside of the church. What do you think about that idea? I think it's a nice idea in theory, but okay. I'm not sure how it would work in certain contexts. So if you've got a local church that has a board, that's one thing. There are disputes within that congregation. You can take it to the board. What if the, what if the church itself wants to split? What board are you taking it to? So, and, you know, and broaden that out to, to diocese and larger denominations. Um, if you had a, you had a ruling board in our diocese, for example, so if there were disputes amongst churches or members, you could take it to the ruling board. That's great. Unless the entire diocese wants to remove itself from the Episcopal church. Mm. Where are you taking it to? To itself? Yeah, we you don't know. have a Pope, right? Well, right. I was going to so, say that it, there is such a thing in the Roman Catholic church. Yeah. Um, but it ends up, there is one, there's, there's one Supreme court. There's one Supreme court with a, with one member. And I, I think that's the only way to make that ultimately work. But the other part of this, and I, I don't know if you want me to open up this can of worms so uh, near the end, but Cole, maybe this will set us up for a future episode. There's another side to this. And that is when you look at something like um, the abuses um, within the Roman Catholic Church um, of young people, Mm-hmm. sexual abuse and how the church responded, Hey, we're going to deal with that ourselves in our courts. Right. Mm-hmm. It becomes, it becomes, uh, uh, the opposite stance of everything I've, I've said for the last hour where the, the church says, Hey, we'll take care of this. And the rest of us from the outside say, you're not doing a good enough job of taking care of it. So we want to enforce the law and ensure that uh, we're protecting citizens um, uh, from the um, uh, predatory practices of certain priests. And the church becomes, uh, the church's own insular court system is in and of itself uh, perpetuating a problem. I mean, that's the accusation that's, yeah, it's been launched, and I yeah. think. Um, well, go ahead, Brian. What, well, what do you think? I just I I think this in some ways relates back to what I was trying to say earlier about this. I think falls under the realm of part of the state's purview is to protect protect people, the safety of its citizens. Yeah. So, if this is a criminal issue, yeah, that's what uh, I was about to say. The state probably needs to get involved, whether it's with yeah. Christians or not. If it's a criminal issue, yeah, where the where the safety and protection of citizens is, is in question. Uh, that's, I think, for where the state should be stepping in. Now, if it's a doctrinal issue, then I don't think the state should be involved in that at all. But this I is a criminal issue. I should have I specified the difference between a criminal issue and a civil issue whenever I pose the question. No, no, I don't think you should have. I think you posed the question the right way. I think that 
where you start to to see differences is that there are disputes and then there are um, acts of violence and yes. and criminal acts that um, and I'm with Brian. I mean, I do not. I want the state to protect people uh, because that's the state's job. And I th- and I think that Paul Paul absolutely makes that claim in Romans 13 that that is the state's yeah. responsibility to uh, right. to protect people. And that it is God's or that 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 God has ordained the state to do that. Yeah, but you do raise an interesting point in that, you know, you in the case of of churches suing each other over property, outsiders can look at that and say, "Man, what a scandal! What a shame!" But if a church tries to handle a, a pedophilia case by itself, <laughs> outsiders look at it and say, "What a scandal! What a shame!" Right. You know, <laughs> very right. interesting. Right, right. So the state, we need the state involved at the right time. So we need to do everything opposite as before. So we need to do opposite George. George.